Mark chapter 10, the first 16 verses. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And crowds gathered to him again and again as his custom was. He taught them. And Pharisees came up and in order to test him asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to put her away. But Jesus said to them, For your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to Two shall become one, so they are no longer two, but one. What therefore God has joined together, let not man put asunder. And in the house the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands upon them. Well, now this evening we come to this 10th chapter of Mark and uh, all the verses from 1 to 52 record uh, incidents which took place on Christ's last journey to Jerusalem. You see that in verse 1. The road the Lord Jesus took was the longer and more generally used route from Galilee to Jerusalem and Judea via Jericho to avoid any contact with Samaria. The Jews would have no dealings with the Samaritans. And uh, it involved crossing the Jordan twice. It was quite a, a way round. And it was on this, road, uh, on this road that the incidents recorded here in these 52 verses took Place. Everywhere along the road, crowds gathered to Christ. And he took the opportunity of teaching them. Mark selects just a few incidents out of what must have been quite a large number. Matthew and Luke in particular record very many more of the incidents. The 99 was told on this journey. The prodigal son, the woman who lost her silver coin, and lots of other stories and incidents which Matthew records, which took place on this last journey up to 
Jerusalem, where he was going to die. Now, in these first 16 verses, we have two incidents. The first to do with marriage and divorce, and the second to do with little children. And I have brought both of these incidents together under the one heading of the home. The older idea was that the children that were brought to him in verse 13 were in fact the children of the house, and they were being brought to him to say good night. But uh, the more uh, recent scholarship uh, believes that the, in, the bringing of this incident is more because it follows so naturally from the question of marriage. Well, whatever it is, certainly they belong together. And I have brought them together under this heading of the home. Now, what I intend to do by the grace and enabling of God this evening is first <coughs> to deal with the first incident, marriage and divorce, then to deal with the second incident, the little children, and finally to make some observations upon the whole matter. Well, now first, from verses 2 to 12, the whole question of the sanctity and permanency of human marriage. The sanctity and permanency of human marriage. Over this passage, I do not think I have any need to say here, there have been many conflicting views. It is therefore very important to understand the background to this incident and the Lord's teaching on the matter of marriage and divorce. I am quite sure that much of our confusion, either the harshness of some people's views or the liberality of their views, is because they do not understand exactly what, was, what lies behind the incident. It came out of a trick question. You must understand that. It came out of a trick question asked by the Pharisees in verse 2. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? The Revised Standard Version says the Pharisees came up and in order to test him, said. The Authorized Version says to tempt him, test him, to try him. It was a trick question. They were not genuinely seeking his guidance or counsel, for they were quite clear themselves as to what the law taught. You see that in verse 4. When he asks them, they say, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate uh, of divorce and to put her away. They were perfectly clear. It was a trick question. What they wanted to do was to trick Christ into saying something which could, be in, which could be clearly interpreted as against Moses. If they could trick him into saying something like that, they'd caught him. <clears throat> now they knew very well that however Christ answered, some people were going to get upset. Divorce at that time was a very hot question in Israel. It was a matter of great controversy between the two main rabbinic schools, the school of Hillel and the school of Shammai. Of course, for most of you, you will have heard of 
Hillel Gulliver Her Gamaliel. Gamaliel, the, one of the great teachers of Israel, one of the great rabbis of Jewish history, was of course, and the one that, Moses, um, that uh, Paul had so much to do, it was his professor uh, at uh, university, if you like, put it that way. Uh, Gamaliel was grandson, the grandson of Hillel. Hillel's a very, very famous name, as so is Shammai, Shammai in, in uh, uh, Jewish history in, in the Talmud. Now, these two great rabbinic schools had a great controversy about this matter of divorce. The whole controversy turned on the interpretation, as in all Jewish matters, and the interpretation of Moses' words in Deuteronomy chapter 24 and the first four verses as to what the unseemly thing that a husband might discover in his wife was. <laughs> now, I think we better read uh, these four verses, then we're all quite clear. Um, Deuteronomy 24, verse 1 to 4. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her and he writes her a bill of divorce and puts it into her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house and if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter husband dislikes her and writes her a bill of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house or if the latter husband dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring guilt upon the land which the Lord your God gives you for an inheritance. Now you will notice that in the um, uh, revised version it is, if he f has found some unseemly thing, in the Revised Standard Version, it is indecency, if he has found some indecency in her. In the, the Authorised Version, it is if he has found some uncleanness in her. In the New English Bible, it is if he finds something shameful in her. Now, the Hebrew literally means something offensive. An unseemly thing. The whole controversy between the school of Hillel, the great rabbinic school of Hillel, and the, the rabbinic school of Shammai, turned upon what is the unseemly thing. In other words, what were the grounds of divorce? We must understand that this word occurs only, this word unseemly thing, shame, something shameful, indecency, occurs only in one other place, and you will find it in the previous chapter, Deuteronomy 23 and verse 14, where it says, because the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp to save you and to give up your enemies before you, therefore your camp must be holy, that he may not see anything indecent among you, and turn away from both these rabbinic schools accepted the possibility of divorce. The school of Shammai was strict in its interpretation, believing that divorce was only permissible because of a wife's unfaithfulness. The school of Hillel, on the other hand, was liberal, believing 
that anything seriously displeasing to the husband was grounds for divorce. There may also have been some further reason for the Pharisees' question. It wasn't just that there was a hot question in Israel and there was all tremendous controversy over this matter of is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Um, we must remember that Herod Antipas, who ruled over Galilee and the region beyond Jordan where this incident took place, had divorced his wife in order to marry Herodias, his half-brother's sister, his half-brother's wife. So there was a real old tangle there. John the Baptist had denounced Herod for this and was finally imprisoned by Herod and executed by him. You can well understand that the way Christ answered their question about divorce could have involved him in a very unpleasant situation with Herod indeed if they chose to report it to him. Now that's just a little bit about the background to this incident. This, these, this group of Pharisees, they came up with this trick test question. They knew whatever he said, there was going to be trouble. <laughs> Furthermore, we need also to understand what in fact the Mosaic law commanded and permitted if we are to become quite clear as to what the Lord was saying here. This is quite important. It's not only that we need to understand the background of this incident, but we actually do need to understand what did the Mosaic law teach anyway. Now, most Christians don't understand this at all, and that's why I've got the problem this evening to try and explain just what the Mosaic law taught, commanded and permitted in the matter of divorce. It was twofold. First of all, adultery annulled marriage. Now get that absolutely clear. Mosaic law taught that adultery annulled marriage. If you will turn up Deuteronomy chapter 22. Deuteronomy chapter 22 verse 22. If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die, the man who lay with the woman and, and the woman. So you shall purge the evil from Israel. Leviticus 20 and verse 10. Leviticus 20 verse 10. If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall be put to death. Now John chapter 8 and verse 9. John chapter 8, verse 9. And they, when they heard it, went out one by one, beginning from the eldest even unto the last. I'm sorry, that's wrong. John chapter 8, verse 5. Now in the law Moses commanded us to stone such. What then sayest thou? Adultery, according to the Mosaic law, annulled Marriage Under the old covenant, if adultery was discovered and the innocent partner reported it to the elders, it was tantamount to asking for the guilty partner's execution. 
Now, it is a very interesting tradition that the little phrase we get in James, love covers a multitude of sins, was originally connected with this, that if a wife were to forgive her husband and not report it, it was covered. But if she exposed her husband or vice versa, the guilty partner died. It was tantamount to asking for their execution. The adultery itself was looked upon as having broken the union between husband and wife. The execution of the offending partner merely legalized the end of the marriage. The guilty one, having been stoned to death, the innocent party was free to remarry. The question of divorce, therefore, did not come up in cases of adultery. Have you all got that absolutely clear? It just didn't even come up. When it came up, it wasn't a question of divorce, it was a question of execution. In which case, if I was married and uh, I had a wife who'd committed adultery, I took it to the elders in the gate of the city or town, and they judged it. She was stoned to death. I could find another wife immediately. I didn't ask for divorce. I didn't even ask for a certificate for divorce. My very reporting of the incident meant the marriage was finished. Execution followed immediately. It had already been settled. Now, by New Testament times, this death penalty could not be enforced since the Roman authorities reserved that right to themselves, although in some cases um, it did happen. For instance, Stephen was stoned to death, and there were other cases where it did in that time. But as far officially... Um, the uh, Jewish people were not allowed to carry out capital uh, punishment. Thus, in Christ's day, there was much discussion as to the grounds for divorce. All were agreed that adultery uh, constituted grounds for divorce. The question was whether there were other grounds for divorce and what those grounds were. Now, I want you to notice something which I think throws, again, a flood of light upon this. Matthew records the same incident in Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19, which of course was for Jewish readers. And um, from verses 3 to 12. Now, will you notice that he gives us a fuller version of the question the Pharisees ask? Verse 3. Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for any cause? For any cause. And will you notice the way the Lord answers? The fuller version here, a clause is added. Verse 9. Whosoever shall put away his wife except for fornication or unchastity. Christ clearly therefore states that divorce is allowed and recognized where there is adultery. Now that's quite clear. However, when it comes to Mark and Luke, we t it's taken for granted that adultery is ground for divorce. What we're dealing with now is, is there anything else? Now, I think we need to get that quite clear. Now, the second thing is this. There was the certificate of divorce. The certificate.
certificate of divorce. Now, what was this? This certificate of divorce was something originally given, not in cases of adultery, but for other grounds, as we have read in Deuteronomy 24, the first four verses. This certificate was given to the wife. It, in fact, protected her. Now, under Muslim law, today, in Muslim countries, a Muslim husband can say to his wife three times, I divorce thee, and that's all he has to say, she's kicked out. She never sees her children again. She never sees her home again. She has no even right to furniture or anything else. She's out. Even in the ancient days, 2,000 years before Christ, or 1,500 years before Christ, God was so the protector of womanhood that when he permitted this divorce, he made sure that it protected the woman. The certificate the certificate for divorce was to protect her so that she didn't just become a common prostitute. She wasn't just sort of flung anywhere. She had a legal standing and she could remarry. Now, what was this certificate of divorce? It was given to the wife by the husband in cases where some unseemly thing had been found in her and had to be signed before witnesses. It severed all connection between husband and wife and allowed both of them to remarry. Under Jewish law, only a husband could divorce. Although a wife, now that may seem a bit undemocratic to the ladies, but in fact it worked out quite well because a wife could appeal to the court about her husband's behavior, and the court could compel the husband to divorce her. So she could get something done. Uh, Mark was written for Gentile and particularly Roman readers, and the Roman in Roman circles, a woman could divorce her husband. That's why you have in Mark only the added phrase in Mark 10 and verse 12, you have this that you will not find in the other Gospels, and if she divorces her husband, a thing no Jew had ever heard of, if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Of course, you will remember that Mark has been written, particularly for Gentile and Roman readers. Now, the basis of the Pharisees' test question concerning divorce was therefore not to do with adultery. In Roman, Greek, and Jewish circles, that was looked upon as clearly constituting grounds for divorce. Their question was whether there were any other grounds for divorce apart from adultery. Christ answered, firstly, by pointing them back to Moses. The whole way the Lord dealt with this was masterly. What had Moses written? Now, will you notice in Verse 3, the way the Lord says this, how he puts his question. What did Moses command you? And will you notice how he got them on the defensive? They answered, Moses allowed a man. That was masterly of the Lord. Absolutely masterly. What did Moses command? They knew very well that Moses wasn't a command from God. They said Moses allowed or suffered in the authorized person. Permitted. That was masterly of the Lord. Moses had allowed them the certificate of divorce, says Christ, in verse 5, because of their hardness of heart. What does that mean? 
their low spiritual and moral condition and character, their insensitivity to God's highest and best, and therefore to one another. When we are insensitive to God's highest and best, we always become insensitive to one another. That's one of the greatest fears of the permissive society. That as things coarsen, and as men become more and more insensitive to God's highest and best, they will automatically become more insensitive to one another. More selfish. More hard. That's what the Lord meant. It always follows. We must note that this commandment concerning divorce was a concession. Now mark that. This commandment concerning divorce, which Moses wrote, was a concession. He allowed it. It was allowed. Marriage was divinely ordained. Divorce permitted only because of human hardness and sinfulness. <laughs> Furthermore, it was conceded, and this is very important, because God is a realist and not an idealist, if we may so speak of him. Better divorce of some kind and the poison contained than a whole nation of adulterers. With all the attendant misery, especially for the children. It was the choice between two evils and divorce was the lesser of those evils. Now, I cannot help feeling, and I must say it even, even if I get into trouble, that in our situation today, that is very important. Whilst not for one single moment lowering the divine ideal and standard of marriage, we must surely recognize that men's hearts are not today less hard than they were in Moses' time. Do let us remember this in dealing with this whole thing. What was the Lord trying to get at in this whole matter? It seems as if he answers us on two levels. He says, what did Moses say? What did he command? Moses allowed it for the hardness of your hearts he did it. Then he says, but I say, and then he tells us something. We'll come to that straight away. Christ takes this matter now beyond Moses and his concession to human weakness, to the very beginning, to the divine and sublime meaning of God in creating male and female. Verse 6, you see how the Lord says, but from the beginning of creation God made them male and female. How wonderful our Lord is. How he always takes a matter from one level and puts it onto another. Takes it out of something which is dark and cramped and unenlightened and then puts it, as it were, uh, into uh, 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 another sphere almost. This is what he's doing here. As always, the Lord dwells on the positive, not the negative, and answers their question by lifting the whole matter onto this other level. God's original and permanent concept in human Marriage. Now, marriage is the closest of human bonds. A man leaves his own kith and kin for a woman, for someone else not of his own kith and kin. 
Now, we're all so used to the question of marriage, it doesn't strike us as a marvel. <laughs> but when you sit back and think, it is really quite extraordinary. Quite extraordinary. He leaves all he has known, ties of birth and blood, and is joined to that woman drawn by some invisible, intangible, yet inherent force within him. You've got that in verse 7. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. Now the two, the man and his wife, become a newly created unity. Both different, yet sharing one life and one name. It is the union of two equal but complementary beings. You've got that in verse 8. And the two shall become one, so they are no longer two, but one. God's mind, therefore, says the Lord Jesus, is not the division or the divorce of those two, but their permanent and progressive union through life. He says in verse 9, What therefore God has joined together, let not man put asunder. Perhaps we see all this most clearly when we understand that marriage represents and symbolizes something eternal. The union between God and man. I'm not going to go into that this evening, but you all know. It's there in Ephesians 5, verse 22 to verse 33. We find it again in Revelation 21, verses 2 and 3, and verses 10 and 11. Now in that union with Christ, there is no place for divorce. It is quite unthinkable. In answering their question, Christ has taken them back to the eternal and timeless mind of God in creating man and woman. Now, if you had to go away and think about this matter for a while, God could easily not have created male and female. There are other ways, you know, of, uh, uh, of recreation or reproduction. And uh, I'm quite sure that God could have planned something else. But in his infinite wisdom, in this creation, not only in a human life, but in others, we have this amazing male and female. God had a mind. He had a purpose in it. It was a tremendous ideal. More than an ideal. It was a plan. Now, I want you to note two very important things here, which need to be said in the question of the Lord's teaching concerning marriage. First, that this closest of human bonds is nevertheless basically a physical bond and as such ends with death. It is, as the marriage service so beautifully puts it, till death do us part. Now we need to say this because much confusion has resulted from the subconscious idea that marriage is eternal. I don't know, only, only the Mormons teach this. 
But you know, it's a subconscious idea, even amongst evangelicals, that marriage is eternal. And much of the confusion about divorce has come out of this. The people believe that God's brought two people together for, for time and eternity. Therefore, you cannot. There cannot be such a thing as divorce. That's terrible. <laughs> but marriage is, in fact, a basically a physical bond and dissolves with death. Now, before you all tear me to pieces, I remind you of the story in Mark chapter 12, and the very amusing story, really, if you see it in that light, because it was amusing, um, of the scribe who came up to the Lord and said, what about the lady Lord who um, was married, her husband died, and he had seven brothers, and according to the Levitical law, he took her over. And then he died, and the next one took her on as his wife, and he died, and the next one, and she went through all seven brothers. What happens in heaven, Lord? Now this shows the subconscious idea in the human mind that marriage is eternal. <laughs> Whose wife is she up there? And the Lord said, you do err, uh, not knowing the scriptures. They do not marry, nor are they given in marriage. They are like the angels. Now let's get that quite clear, because I think there is this idea that marriage is eternal has influenced, uh, uh, to a certain amount, the popular thinking in Christian circles over the matter of divorce. Certainly, I feel it in Catholic circles and Anglican circles. The second thing I would like to say is this, that in verse 9, here's another very important point. It is what, therefore, God has joined, not, as in our prayer book marriage service, those whom God hath joined, let not man put asunder. Now, of course, the latter is true as well. God leads two people personally together for life. But what Christ was saying was not that God leads people personally together and therefore they must stay together, true as that is. What he was seeking to say was not something personal but something general. God's idea is the marriage of man and woman and not their divorce. What therefore God has put together, let not man put us under or undo. Let us, let me put it in another way. If the Lord was here this evening, I think this is what he would say to us disciples. Let us not sink into a promiscuous state of freedom into the ultra-permissive society which we see around us. Nor let even its spirit get into us. The marriage of one man to one woman for life and their utter devotion, faithfulness and loyalty one to the other through life is God's mind and ideal. Well, I hope that makes it a little clearer for you. For some reason, maybe not so hard to find, what Christ had said provoked the twelve to some heart-searching. When they were alone with him in the house, they took the matter up again. It's very interesting. They didn't ask him publicly. They waited till they were inside the house, and they took the matter up. That is quite interesting psychologically. Verse 10. 
it seems reasonably clear that the impression made upon them was that apart from adultery, there are no other grounds for divorce. Even if, as a concession to the hardness of men's hearts, divorce in the unbelieving world were to be recognized, no such concession is given to believers, except in the case of desertion by an unsaved partner. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7 from verse 10 to 16, where it says, uh, at least I believe it says, if an unsaved partner gets up and leaves, let him. The person in that state is free, is not bound, is not in bondage. Matthew tells us, and it's Matthew again that we get a little bit of light on this matter, Matthew tells us that spon the spontaneous reaction of the twelve was that it would be better not to marry. Now that, to me, throws a flood of light on their home life. You've got that in, in Matthew chapter 19 and verse 10. This is what they said after this uh, matter. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's not expedient to marry. <laughs> that throws, I, I, I can't help feeling it throws a flood of light on the standard of their home life. <coughs> Obviously, they, they looked upon marriage as some kind of bondage. And whether, whether, in, whether some of them were actually hoping that by being with Christ they would be able to sort of annul their marriage in the end, it's quite possible. They were very, very human, these um, disciples. Why would they have gone to this bother of getting into the house alone and, uh, in private and then bringing the whole matter up again? And why was the Lord so emphatic? Whoever divorces his wife, marries again, commits adultery. And if she divorces him, as he was quite emphatic about it. Well, we'll come back to that in, in one moment. But it seems to me that we can say now, you won't find this in the notes. It seems to me that we can say um, three things about uh, this matter of marriage and divorce. Let's first remember that the Lord has now taken the whole thing out of the realm of divorce into the realm of marriage. And once again, we stated God's concept in human marriage. I can't help feeling, first of all, that there are no grounds for divorce except for adultery, in which, in, in which case the marriage is annulled by the adultery of that partner, or by the desertion of an unsaved partner. Otherwise, there seems to be no ground for divorce for believers. I think, however, when we come to the unbelieving world, for the hardness of men's hearts, God recognizes divorce. And this means that when a person becomes a Christian, God does not wake up the past, but he gives them a new life and a new beginning and a new hope. In other words, obviously, we have to recognize it. What do we do if a man comes to the, to the Lord who was originally married to someone else and who has divorced, got married again, has, say, a family of five children, and he comes to the Lord. Are we to say, now then, you've got to divorce, go back to the... And the other one's probably married and also got a family. Of course not. God is a realist in these matters. He's not a legalist. 
And so if it says for the hardness of their hearts this matter was allowed, then, well, obviously it must be so. The great thing and the great point is this. In Christ, once we've stepped into Christ, there's a new world, a new life, a new beginning, a new book is opened with not a blot in it. The past is gone. So we thank God for that. And we can start there. And then, of course, what we want to get quite clear is that uh, the Lord's concept concerning uh, God's original concept and permanent concept in human marriage is the marriage of one man and one woman, as I have said. Now we come to these uh, few verses, 13, uh, uh, 14 and 15. It's all to do with little children. It would seem that the recording of the incident quite naturally follows what Christ has said about the sanctity and permanency of marriage. The divine thought in marriage is not only mutual help, mutual protection and fellowship, but the creation of a family. Children are a heritage of the Lord and a very precious one. Not only are there great joys in parenthood, there are also very heavy responsibilities, even more so for Christian parents. The disciples, although most were probably married and fathers, did not have too much concern for children. They rebuked those bringing the little ones to Christ. Verse 13, when they saw them, the children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people. I've got too much concern. It may have been that they thought the Lord was being worn out by these little children. I think it is much more likely, if I know myself, that it did not suit them too much. You know the kind of thing little Jacob has just been sick on Brother Andrew. And far worse accidents as well as all the children were in with the disciples. I'm quite sure that the disciples felt this was quite beneath the di their dignity as being co-workers of, their newly of the newly discovered Messiah. All these little children. It wasn't place or the time. If, however, they showed little concern or care for children, the Lord showed much. So many of his miracles had been to do with children. Jairus' daughter, the widow of Nain's son, the little lad with the five loaves and two fishes, the epileptic and demon-possessed boy, the nobleman's son, the Syrophoenician woman's daughter, and so on and so on. He was much displeased and indignantly told them not to stop the children coming. Will you note that in verses 14 and 15, what Christ was really saying was that if only the disciples were like those children, they wanted to send away. That's really what he was saying in verses 14 and 15. Let's just um, uh, read those. Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom 
of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. What the Lord was really saying was this. If only you all had the character that these little children had that you want to get rid of. What was the character of the children? Now here we fall into a trap. Generally people say humility. But humility is not a quality of little children. <laughs> this is the generally, uh, general concept. Uh, humility. No, humility is not the uh, quality of really the most apparent quality uh, in little children. I think what we would say is openness, receptiveness, dependence, trust. Those are the qualities, I think, that we would speak of little children. If only you had that nature and that character. They had not exhibited a character very much like that. When you think of them arguing as to who was the greatest in chapter 9, verse 33. When you think of them a little after this in chapter 10, in the same chapter, verses 33, 32 is it onwards, uh, where they are arguing or trying to wangle out of the Lord the two best places in the kingdom, next to him on the left and on the right hand of Messiah in his glory. These were not men at all like those little children. Well, you note two things. First, in verse 14, the kingdom of, of God belongs to the childlike nature. Isn't that beautiful? The kingdom of God belongs to the childlike nature. Oh, that we may keep the simplicity of Christ. Paul says it in his second letter to Corinth in chapter 13, that we may be kept, I think it's chapter 13, where he prays that we may be kept in the simplicity of Christ. And then will you notice secondly in verse 15, what a remarkable way it's put. I don't think it's put anywhere else. I would be very interested if anyone can find anywhere in the uh, New Testament where it's put in another uh, way. This here, receive the kingdom of God as a child. It's quite interesting, isn't it? We receive the kingdom of God as a child. I don't think it's anywhere else put like that. It's almost remarkable. Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. <laughs> so you receive it and enter it. Isn't it interesting? <laughs> you receive the kingdom of God like a little child and then you enter it. <laughs> quite extraordinary. Think about it. What a beautiful picture Mark draws for us in this verse 16. Christ, the servant of the Lord, taking these little ones into his arms and positively cuddling them. That's the picture I get. Perhaps it's a bit undignified, but that's exactly how I see it. I see the Lord with them all around him, taking them into his arms <laughs> and positively cuddling them uh, with feeling, blessing them one by one, as they come. Now let all those who are engaged in children's work take encouragement from these verses. Such work is not to be looked upon as the Cinderella, nor 
is it to be looked upon as just insignificant? Oh, um, so-and-so's teaching the little ones. That doesn't really matter much. Anyone can teach the children. This is quite false. Quite false. It is an inestimable privilege to have anything to do with children. And the very place the Lord gives little children should lead us to that recognition. It is children's work is exceedingly precious to the Lord and his true service. I suppose none of us will ever know, at least those of us who've got a Christian background, just how much we owe to the faithfulness of those who taught us when we were young whether it was teachers or whether it was parents, because I feel there's a sad lack in this matter. If only parents would teach their children, instead of looking upon it as something done in Sunday school. So sad. Never underestimate or devalue children. Never. Well, now, there we are. Those are the two incidents. We've got just a few moments in which we can make some observations. We might well ask ourselves what connection these two passages have with the rest of the material in this section, the cross of Christ, the principle of true <laughs> service. Of course, the liberals will naturally tell us that um, this material was just inserted here. Um, others will tell us that there is no real design in it. I think at a first glance, the, these two passages appear to have no connection at all with what either precedes it or succeeds it. But that is only superficial. The fact that the disciples asked the Lord privately about what he had said concerning the sanctity and permanency of marriage probably points to the fact that they were rather disturbed by it in relation to their own homes. Matthew's account certainly seems to reveal that. Then again, we know that they did not show much regard for children. And these same disciples were being trained as Christ's co-workers with an attitude to their homes like that and to the children. They were being trained as servants of the Lord with him in his service. The inclusion of these two incidents here surely reveals the importance which Christ attaches to our home life in the service of of God. It is unfortunately a not uncommon phenomenon to see unhappy marriages, this may shock some, break down in family relationships, carelessness over the upbringing of children amongst servants of the Lord. Oh, if you knew the stories we hear. If we could only stand up this evening and say, this is a rare, a rarity, it isn't. 
It's tragically too common. Just think how sad it is the number of bitterly anti-Christian children of servants of the Lord we meet. Bitterly anti-Christian. Now, of course, every family has its black sheep. But surely there's something wrong when whole families go off the rails. This breakdown, in my estimation, becomes far more serious when the will of God, devotion to the Lord, the ministry or service of Christ, are used as pretext for sheer irresponsibility towards one's own kith and kin. It is utterly shameful. I think the Apostle Paul felt the same when he said in Timothy, he that careth not for his own household or family is worse than a heathen. The testimony of the servant of the Lord is very much bound up with his or her family relationships. Now, this is why there is so much in the New Testament about such relationships. You, it's inescapable. Now, people don't like always being reminded of these things, but it is quite inescapable. You take Ephesians, you're up in the heavens for the first three chapters, and then down you come in chapter four and five to practicalities and realities. And then, before you're through chapter four, you're right up against the home. Wives, husbands, parents, children. You turn over to Colossians, you've got exactly the same thing. A tremendous revelation of all that God has put in Christ, all that God has done through Christ, all that has been created for Christ, all that God gives us in Christ, and so on. And then, in chapter 3, verse 18, we're back again. Wives, your relationship to your husband. Husbands, your relationship to your wives. Fathers, your relationship to your children. Children, your relationship to your fathers. And so on. It is, to me, I think, in quite interesting to note that Peter evidently saw this when he was older. For it is in his first letter, and chapter 3, and uh, verse 1 to 7, that Peter has quite a lot to say about wives and husbands. We cannot read it all, but he starts very much like Paul, about wives, and then he goes on in verse 7 to husbands, and so on. It seems quite clear that, the, uh, that dear Peter had uh, learnt um, his lesson. Will you also note the emphasis, the dogmatic emphasis, on the good testimony in the home life of all who would serve the Lord in any capacity in 1 Timothy chapter 3 from verses 1 to 13 and Titus chapter 1 from verses 6 to 9 whether it's 
bishops or elders or deacons, it doesn't matter what capacity it is, the apostle puts his finger upon this thing. He says to Timothy, now Timothy, don't you, you see that no one gets into any of these uh, positions? See that no one starts to serve the Lord in this full way unless they have a good testimony in the home. If we marry and if we have children, we have taken on serious responsibilities. We cannot under any circumstances whatsoever shelve those responsibilities. Whilst giving the Lord his place and seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, we must discharge fully and faithfully the responsibilities we have taken on. Whether it is to husband, to wife, or to children. The quality and acceptability of our service will depend. That's why I'm quite sure we have these two incidents recorded here in this whole passage about service. I believe that what the Lord is trying to say to us is that um, if you and I have not got a good testimony in our home life, we must go back there and get that right. And surely, we ought to say quite clearly that the principle of the cross does not just operate in the church. When I say the church, I mean the meetings of the church. The principle of the cross is meant to operate in our home life, in our marriage relationship, and in our the relationship of parent to child. Surely that's where there's all the breakdown. And that's why the Apostle Paul puts it rather boldly in 1 Corinthians 7 and has been called ever since a woman hater. Mm -hmm which he was not, uh, that uh, it's better to stay unmarried and serve the Lord if you feel that you cannot discharge your responsibilities. But as he is at great pains to say in a number of places, get married. It's a good, honorable, undefiled state. And God wants Christian homes and Christian families in which the Lord is known and seen. But is it not wholly shameful and inglorious when we see people supposed to be serving the Lord and their children are absolutely uncared for? 
or when we see someone who's supposed to be serving their Lord and there's a dreadful situation between them and the wife or the wife and her husband. Surely there must be something wrong with us if we can't get, our, uh, get together, get on our knees and settle the matter at Calvary. And surely it needs to be said to all of us that if there is anything like this of strain in our homes or strain in our relationships, then for the Lord's sake, we ought to get on our knees together, whether it means humbling ourselves to the dust. Now, of course, I always hear this when anyone ever said anything like this. Well, I mean, it's so-and-so. I'm always in the wrong. But you know, the Lord Jesus has given us an example in this matter. He took a bowl of water and washed the feet of his disciples. And in the course of that, he washed Judas's feet. Now surely, if the Lord could wash the feet of Judas, who was a traitor, who was a quisling, who was a thief, surely, if the Lord could wash the feet of the one who was to betray him, you can wash the feet of your husband or wife or whoever else it is. What have we been talking about? May I have no doubt that probably in the quietness of the home the Lord may have said this to those twelve. What on earth have I been talking about? Do you remember I said if any man come after me, let him give up right to himself. Take up his cross and follow me. Now what is this talk? I always have to apologize. I'm the one that always has to do it. What it means is this. You talk about serving the Lord and all the rest of it. But of course, it's a question of right. You've still got your rights. We cannot, we cannot live in two worlds. If we're going to get married and we're going to have all the joys and privileges of a home, we must discharge the responsibilities. And the same for the children. It is such a serious thing to bring children into the world in these days. <coughs> And uh, there is, of course, no better antidote for all the wickedness and corruption around us than for the children to grow up in an atmosphere where they see sincerity, genuineness, and openness in their father and mother. They see something in their relationship with each other which isn't always smooth. I don't believe it harms a child to see sometimes something unsmooth in a relationship. But what harms them is when there's a breakdown, coldness, hardness, tension, cloud. That, I think, is more harming than anything else in the world. And then they see the, the same parents singing hymns, talking about the wickedness of this world. And all the filth that comes out of this and out of that and out of the other. Of course it's quite obvious that 
folk growing up today are too sophisticated not to see through it all. They see through it all in an instant. That's why the Lord, had, by the Spirit, has brought together these two incidences right in this matter to do with, this, with service and with the principle of the cross. The devil will see to it that there will be plenty of scope in our home life for the cross. But I think there everything will be tested. May the Lord then help us. Uh, look at that. I thought we'd never get through. We're ending early tonight. You've got a bonus. But uh, um, there's a very difficult um, um, passage indeed. But something surely that even if we don't quite understand all that has been said, surely we see one thing, and that is that our home life, if we are married, if we have children, and we want to serve the Lord, whether it is just in our ordinary job or in our home, then that home life is vital in the matter of testimony. And don't just put it down to a question of what is seen. Of course, that's important, what the children see, what the world sees. Remember that there is all around an unseen host watching. And uh, there's a testimony in the home. That's why I've called it the testimony of the home. It's vital importance in service. They're watching too. And the way you come through and the way I come through means a lot to the Lord Jesus. May he give every one of us grace so that uh, if we have problems, if we have difficulties, he may give us that humility, that brokenness, that readiness to go down and be nothing. That's the start of a new, big, a, a new way. Because you see, as I've so often said, I have to say it to myself, I'm afraid many times too, um, really, when it comes to it, it is not the person who is wrong who controls and governs any situation. It is the person who is right. Always. That can be in a big matter to do in the church, some clash or something else. People can get angry and want to but they're not the people that worry the Lord. He can settle them in an instant. It's the people who are right. They're the trouble. How they react. What they do. If they will only go down before the Lord, then the Lord comes right and says, I'll take this on. You see what I mean? And it's just as simple as this. If I say, my rights, then the Lord steps back and says, all right, your rights. So you stand on your right and say, well, I don't see why I should do so and so and so and so and so. All right, the Lord says, I don't either. You carry on. It's the old principle of the, with the thrower, the Lord is thrower. With the merciful, the Lord is merciful. You go down, the Lord says, right, I'll come through on this. I'll deal with it. Well, may the Lord just give us help in this kind of, ma of matter. Because I'm quite sure that most of our problems in a home 
are, are, are held up by the people who are right. If they could only let go, there'd be a new way. Shall we pray? Now, Lord, we pray together that thou wilt really help us to understand this complex matter. And Lord, we wouldn't dwell just on the negative. We want, Lord, that thou wilt come right through to us with all that thou hast for us. We believe, Lord, thou wouldst make our homes places of light, places of joy, places where the Lord is known where children grow up in an atmosphere which is honest and open and true, where the Lord is known in the midst. Oh, Father, we pray together for every single home in this company. We pray that thou would help every husband, every wife. Thou would help, Lord, all parents with their children. We pray, Lord, for all servants of thine. We believe the enemy comes in in every way possible to disrupt family life, to destroy the testimony in the home, and therefore make service ineffective. Lord, we pray together by thy Holy Spirit. Do lead all thy dear servants to a real experience of thy cross, so that thou can settle things and deal with things, and that there that the home may be a place where the Lord is expressed and known. Now, Lord, we commit ourselves to thee and pray that thou teach us through these things. And grant, Lord, that it may not be lost upon us. We ask it in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.